Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. stirred afresh this week uh, with what God has put on my heart. John chapter 20, if you have a Bible, if you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, one of our ushers would love to serve you if you just signify by lifting your hand, and uh, Gary would do a great job, and he will help a brother or a sister out. If you didn't get one, again, you can raise your hand. John chapter 20, John chapter 20, we're in week three of a series called Word of the Week. How many of you been blessed by God's Word the last few weeks? Yeah, it's been good, hasn't it? I've, I've really enjoyed this, and I think it's coming a, a wonderful time in the life of our church. Today, I want to transition from what I talked about two weeks ago, which is the politics of Jesus, the politics of man. Thank you so much for the feedback, uh, whether it be good, positive, or indifferent. <laughs> um, those are always subjects to, that are really, really challenging to tackle, and you are a gracious congregation to facilitate that conversation, and I pray that your Connect groups had some really good times and conversation as well. And uh, maybe today will be the same for your connect group. But John chapter 20, and I, I want to talk about this today. I want to talk about passion. Everybody say passion. passion. And here's what I want us to consider. Have you ever lost your passion? Have you ever lost your passion? Has your passion for God ever waned at all? Or is it lessened in any sense? Have you ever been in a season of life where your passion seems to be dissipating. Maybe you're sitting here today, and if you're really honest with yourself, your passion for God is not what it once was. It's very apparent. You know this, and whether or not you've been wanting to verbalize it, it's a reality. Your passion has waned. You used to be very red hot. You used to be very white hot. I don't know why you use these different phrases, but you used to be, but now you feel that it has waned in some way. Like, what has happened to your passion? I want to submit to you today and to us as a congregation through a collection of scriptures, one of, I think, the primary reasons why our passion for God, why our passion for who he is, and why our passion for what he has done begins to lessen in our life. Like, why does it lessen? Why have you lost your passion? Why have you lost your zeal? Why have you lost, in some sense, your love or your purpose? Maybe you're here today or maybe you're streaming live today and you are, I don't know if you would admit it or even say it out loud, but you're hanging on by a thread and you're here today just saying, you know what, is this even real? Is this thing called Christianity even legitimate? Is there an ability to have a biblical worldview within the context of the social structure and context that we see in American and Western culture? Is it even real? Should I actually keep pursuing faith or should I not? Should I make a detour? Should I turn left? Should I actually keep pursuing God? Does it make any difference? Does it make any difference to go after God? And what I would like to do, I would like to, for us to talk specifically about why our, I believe our passion for God begins to wane. And I want to say this from the outset so that you understand we're leveled here. I'm speaking today from personal experience. You understand that, right? I know exactly. I know exactly what it's like, okay, for your passion to absolutely wane. In fact, I'm going to take a step further. I know what it's like to preach sermons when you don't have any passion for God. Try that on for size. Sucks. I've stood on this stage before, as embarrassing as it is to admit, with a very low passion for God and the things of God. Okay, Very low passion, a dissipating passion in some sense. 
that it's, it's the reality. I've been there. I've preached not on this stage, but on stages in all different places and cities where personally my passion on the inside was lean, where my passion was limited, where it was little, and yet because I signed up and I said yes to Jesus and I gave him the blank check and I signed the dotted line, I signed up to be a preacher of the history and the story of God, I have found myself sometimes where I have preached from a place of very little passion. Now, the the truth is no one wants to live like that, right? None of us want to experience life like that. We all want to be passionate about what we do. And when it comes to God, we want a true and a genuine passion. I'm believing, I hope you can believe with me, that in the next few minutes by way of study and by looking at Jesus in the scriptures, I'm actually believing you can leave this space today with a real and genuine red-hot passion for God. That literally you could leave today and your heart could be full of desire for God. Now listen, that is a big call for any human being to try to stand on a stage and speak to people as distracted as we are in the Western world in a matter of the time I have. That is a monstrous call, but I can believe for it. I can believe for it. I can stretch forth my faith to believe that desire can build in your heart for God and the things of God. So let's go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if I had a second title for this message, it would be what happened to my passion, but I went with my first title, and that's called the key of knowledge, the key of knowledge. John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. A little context here of what's happening. Jesus has died on the middle cross. It's now nighttime of the third day. The third day. He's been gone, right? He died on Friday at 3 o'clock p.m. It's now nighttime of Sunday. He promised and he predicted his own death. He predicted his own burial. He predicted his own resurrection. But his few followers are left scared and confused. They, They don't know at this point whether or not the prediction of his resurrection actually came to pass. The air has been sucked out of the room. They've locked themselves into a room. They're hoping to remain unfound. Why? Because they, they fear for their own life. They don't want to die like their Savior did three days ago. Now, notice what happens. Jesus walks through the walls, and he says, relax. In other words, he says, shalom, peace be to you. And when he had said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, Some English words do absolutely no justice to the Greek. Exhibit A, okay? The disciples were glad when they saw that it was him. You are glad when an Amazon package is delivered to your front door, okay? This is not glad. This is a bad mistake in in English translation. We, we, We missed the ball badly here in terms of translation. This is not, they were excited because it's Amazon Prime Week, right? They are categorically beside themselves. Their brain is a mush. It has exploded internally. All hope has been restored. They go from sad, from mad, from afraid, from fearful, to ecstatic, to exhilarated, to electric. And the reason why is because Jesus, who died three days ago, has now beat death. Jesus has delivered what he said he would deliver. And therefore, if he's beat crucifixion and he's come back from crucifixion, if he's come back to life, everything he said is true. Therefore, if he's 
done what he said he would do, all of his claims become true. By definition, you need to understand something, church. John chapter 20, verse 19 and 20, which you and I just read, this is the beginning of what we now call Christianity. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but let me tell you something. Adam and Eve are not the beginning of Christianity. I don't mean to burst your bubble, okay? But Noah and the ark is not the beginning of Christianity. David and Goliath is not the beginning of Christianity. You ready for this? The birth of Jesus is not the beginning of Christianity. You ready for this? The baptism of Jesus is not the beginning of Christianity. Ready for this? The Friday, Good Friday, hanging on a cross, six hours, suspended between heaven and earth, is not the beginning of Christianity. In fact, Paul would say later in Romans 15, if Jesus stayed dead, if he did not come back, your life is pitiful, your faith is futile, you're empty, you're dead in your sins, and we Jesus followers are the most pitiful people on the planet. The beginning of Christianity is on the third night when Jesus walks through a door of huddled up disciples, fearful for their life, and says to him, peace, be still. Unless he actually came back from the dead, we are dead in our sins. So this is the night faith truly began. Jesus did the unthinkable. Jesus did the miraculous. He resurrected. His disciples went from passionless, terrified, mortified, embarrassed, and sad to ecstatic, electric, on fire and couldn't wait to share the news. Now, now, not many days from now, let me make sense of this. Many days from now, in Acts chapter 2, these same people who see Jesus in the room that night will share the gospel on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people will be added to the church. Now, I'm going to do the math for you, okay? I'm going to do the math with the equivalents in the modern day world and what population strategies and all that. That's like modern day world, 3 million people come to Jesus in one day. Three million. Now, I want to make sense of this, and you need to hold this. It should be added that the 3,000 that were added in Acts chapter 2 were added before the church. This is before, or I should say, before the construction of the New Testament. When they were added to the church that day, this is before we hold 27 New Testament books. It was all by word of mouth. All Christianity in the first century was about word of mouth, eyewitness account about a person named Jesus. That's all it was is spread like wildfire. Christianity, are you ready? It began on the third night when Jesus appeared to his disciples. And that, my friends, will be very, very important for us going forward today when we are investigating why has our passion for God lessened? Why has our passion for God waned? Or maybe you're thinking today, hey, Pastor Craig, I've never been more passionate for God. Fantastic fantastic okay if that's the case i want you to take this sermon fold up the card put it in your pocket and when the day comes when your passion begins to wane i want you to revisit these passages and look now you say pastor craig that is so bad for you to predict that my passion is going to wane or you can just admit you're a human and one day you're on the top of the world and you feel on top of your faith, and the next day you're teetering on atheism. If you've not lived that life, you just haven't lived long enough yet. Okay? That's what it means to be human. That's what the human condition is. That emotional instability in so many different ways. Mama said there'd be days like this. There's days like this. Days where I'm on top of the world, and days where I'm teetering on atheism. It's called life. It's called emotions. It's called lag. It's called something real. It's true. We'll all have moments in life like this. And I want to pray. I want you to pray for me. I want to pray for you. Some days it doesn't happen often. Some days I get these really bad attacks in the 
stomach with IBS that I have. I have it going on bad this morning, so I'm feeling not good. So you pray that I get some strength and some relief, and I'll pray for you that here God speak to you. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that in these moments, Lord, that we have together, we can see Jesus, and that when we see Jesus, we know God's passion will be reignited, restored, re-strengthened. And we give you praise, honor, and glory. Lord, for every person that's here today, I pray that they would hear your words. You would speak with clarity and they would hear and know, God, that you and Jesus, you, God, have purpose and destiny. Lord, as you meet with them, draw them to yourself. Call them to follow you. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Now, have you ever lost passion? I mean, lost passion for something that you love, something that you've just been absolutely over the moon about. If the answer is not yes, then you are a liar. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great way to start a sermon, right? Hey, you're a liar, and you're a liar too, right? No, the, the reality is, it's true, right? We've, we've lost passion in some sense in life. We, we're all familiar with that as human beings. You know, there's something you love. Like, I think of my own journey. Like, I grew up after, after, after I got saved at 16 years old, and I began to watch other preachers and, and preach, right? And I began to think as I watched other pre- preachers preach, I began to look at other men and women of God preach, and I'm thinking, I want to preach. I want to tell people about the history of God. I want to tell people about the story of God. Man, I would love one day to be able to declare God's truth. And I remember dreaming about preaching when I was 16. When I turned 17 years old, I preached my first sermon. Never forget, I had a Judges chapter 1, okay? I did my first week of revival meetings. Y'all know, y'all know those old school revival meetings. I did my first week of revival meetings when I was 19 years old. We've completely destroyed all the DVDs, CDs, and cassettes at this point, okay? They're nowhere to be found. Uh, I preached in youth conferences when I was 20. I began to do youth conferences, and I began to do youth camps. And I remember, woo, I remember the exhilaration of the opportunity to declare the truth of God, and the people would give me the time of the day to listen to me. I remember thinking, what an opportunity that people would actually listen to what I have to say as I explain the story of God. And I absolutely, listen church, I absolutely loved every minute of it. But now I'm, I'm 34, about to be 35 in a few weeks. I thought about this week, I'm almost at halftime. That's where I'm at. What about that? I'm almost at halftime, all right? Some of you are over seven and you're like, well, you're not even to halftime yet. And I'm like, that's right, amen, praise Jesus. I hope I'm not at halftime yet. But I feel I'm close to halftime. And uh, now, halftime's interesting. Halftime's a place where you can make really, really great decisions, like good football teams, or you can make bad decisions like Tennessee. Whatever decision, I mean, you can make, this is a, this is a shift. You can, you can have really, really good time, or you can make a real big, disastrous decision, right? So I, I'm being at this age, and I'm looking back after, you know, a decade of ministry, over a decade of ministry, and, and I want to be honest with you this morning. I wish I could tell you that every time I've stepped on stage to declare God's truth. I've been exhilarated, ecstatic. But I am, as again, embarrassed to admit, it's not like that. There have been countless times where I feel like the last thing I want to do is the thing I once loved. The last thing I want to engage in is the thing that I used to be so passionate about. Now, I don't think I'm alone in this. I've watched enough 30 for 30s. I've watched enough ESPN documentaries to hear about these athletes whose stories go somewhat similar. 
Here's what happens. They start off growing up in this country or a nearby neighboring country and and all they want to do is play sports and they finally make it to the big show. They get the big break. They make it to the big leagues, whatever your big league is, the NHL or the NFL or the MLS or the MLB. Lord Jesus, please touch Ian Anderson's horn tonight. Make the ball have butter on it. Let no Dodger hit it in Jesus' mighty name. Then as the story goes on, all of the sudden, what begins to happen? All of the sudden, it becomes a job. So for the athlete, it was all about stars in his eyes, stars in her eyes, and then it becomes, before you know it, the kid with stars in his eyes, all he wanted to do was a big break. There's now contracts, and there's now agents, and there's now managers, and there's now COVID pre-regulations, and there's now meeting this idea, and you got to meet that idea, and you got to talk to this person, and all of these things, what it does is it suddenly, what? It removes the passion for what once was everything in that athlete's life. It's human nature. It's human nature. Now, I think part of that, if you'll stick with me, is we always think, you know, I'm going to arrive one day. In America, we believe it's always about arrival, but it never really is. We always believe or under the deception that, you know, once I get there, I'll be happy. Once I get that job, it'll be good. Once I get to that place in life, something will change. That's not today's message. That's a whole other message. But today's message is this, is what do you do when you've lost that passion? What do you do when that passion wanes? Now, with myself and others, I've helped in moments like this. You know, when I've helped, I always say it's always about reminding them of how it all started. Right? Now, as cliche as that sounds, I know it it sounds really cliche, but you sit down with somebody, you sit down with the athlete, you sit down with the barista, you sit down with the business owner, you sit down with the school teacher, and you say, hey, how, how did you get into this in the first place? And when you ask that question to a person, how did you get into this in the first, that's where the magic comes back up, Right? That's where all of a sudden the stars come back in their eyes and they say, you know what? I remember walking in Starbucks at 12 years old. I remember. And when I did, that smell of coffee filled my nostrils. My olfactory cells went off like the 4th of July. And when those olfactory cells, I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a barista. By the way, we got some good coffee connoisseurs here at, at, at DP. It might mean some of you need to start really donating your time, energy, and effort to come early each and every Sunday and just make some awesome varieties of coffee, right? But we have some good coffee connoisseurs here at DPC, right? I mean, we really do. Like, I remember... You know, I remember at some age thinking, you know what, my teachers made an impact in my life, so I want to make an impact in their life. It's not hard, honestly, seeing the magic come back in an athlete's eyes when they begin to talk about how they dreamed about being in the big leagues one day. And they go back in that conversation and they recover that love. But listen, it's not too dissimilar with what happens in our relationship with God. For me, for me. I'm going to speak for myself. I've been to so many camps, y'all. I've been to so many advances. I've been to so many Christian retreats. I've been to so many Christian summits. I've been to Christian rallies. I've been to Christian gatherings. I've been to Christian conferences. I've been to Christian everything. About everything that you can have that is Christian, I've been to. But, and I've been to so many, but a few of them stick out. And you know what they stick out? Those ones when I was younger in the Lord. And preachers, we get up in those days. You don't hear it much in these days. And they'd say, hey! If you want to serve God, young people, get out of your seats. Come down to the altar and lay your life on the altar of God, right? And I remember, you don't hear much of this kind of preaching anymore. And I remember running down to the altar, right? And those were the days when giving my life to God was like God was so blessed by me giving my life to him. Like he was so fortunate. 
I remember how fortunate he was when I was 17. I mean, he was the richest dude in the universe when I said, hey, I'll give you the next, you know, 70 years. I know you're eternal, but I'll give you 70. I mean, he was, he was pleased and excited, blown away. Now, you're laughing like you should be, but I kind of thought that. I kind of thought that. Don't you know what I'm talking about? Like, God, I'm giving you everything. Lord, well, no matter where you go, I will follow after you. And I, as a 17-year-old, opened my big mouth, and I said things like, God, I'll do anything for you. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it, God. Wherever you tell me to go, I will go. Like, all I want is you, which is not always the truth. You know what I'm saying? Like, we Christian, I take it for what it's worth. Like, we, we like to sing, you know, you know, we sing songs in church like, you know, all I want is you, God. Hey, where do you want to go eat lunch? Y'all want to go eat lunch? Like, all I want is you. I surrender all. Oh, my gosh. They don't even have my size, jean, my size in those jeans. Like, I just, It's true. We're humans. But we genuinely mean it, generally speaking. All I want is you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. But I remember 16 years old, 17 years old, giving my life to God and saying, I'll do anything. And then life happens. And God answers your prayers. And he puts you in the role that you once loved. But with it becomes responsibility. And all of a sudden, you'll find incrementally, subtly, you don't have the passion what you once had. Here's what I suggest to others in that moment. I think what happens is this. The things that are not the point become the point and they steal our passion. The things that are not the point become the point and they steal our passion. Right? A lot of us are doing what we do right now even in our Secular jobs because we love people. We do what we do. A lot of us, the job, the career, we've chosen why. It's because we want to help inspire people. We want to bring about change in people's lives. And yet oftentimes, instead of making it about the people anymore, we make it about the process and we make it about getting more money and we make it about the career and we make it about getting more influence and we make it about the contracts and we make it about engaging that other person. And in the process of it, we lose our passion because the passion is connected to what you originally did it for in the first place that's where the passion is some people say well pastor craig you're just an optimist no no i'm not just an optimist i'm just telling you there's times in my life in this journey of following jesus where i go back to when i was 17 years old my 17 year old self to try to recover why am i doing this in the first place why did i ever say yes to church planning why in the world did i ever say yes to giving my life to equip god's people for works of ministry now what i want to do is I want to translate that into the first century disciples. Because our predecessors, our brothers and sisters, who at this point, as Jesus had died, they've locked themselves in a room. It's safe to say Jesus' followers have lost their passion. Everybody say passion. Let me, let me now ask of John 20 some more important questions. Can we ask the text some questions? Let's do it. John chapter 20, let me ask you a question. Why have these Jesus followers lost their passion? Why is their passion gone? Because I would like to suggest to us today the reason their passion is gone is the exact same reason why sometimes we lose our passion. I want to talk specifically not why you lose passion for your job, but why do you lose passion for God? So watch this. These Jesus followers are locked in a room 
right? Because they're afraid. What are they afraid of, John 20? Let's ask the question. They're afraid of dying as well. They're afraid because this man they followed, the God-man Jesus Christ, was a man who they now believe is dead. They now believe he's gone. You might not, you, you, listen, church, you got to understand something that so many Christians misunderstand. You need to understand this. If Jesus stayed dead, he is nothing short of a lunatic. If Jesus stayed in the grave, you must understand that. You don't get to go run around town for three and a half years telling people you're God in the flesh, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And then everyone goes, you know, after you die, man, what a good guy. No, man, what a good guy. He, was, he had the right heart. You don't get to do that. Oh, really? He had good teachings. Oh, did you really understand them? No, I didn't really understand them. Yeah, I actually didn't know what he was saying ever, you know, but I enjoyed getting his bread. He had a good heart. Seemed like he was, seems like he was pure. No, no. We are talking about a man who at the climactic sermon of his life said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a lot of people said, hey, come on, gather up the kids, your wife. Hide your wife, hide your kids, let's go. You know what I'm saying? It's time to leave. We've been waiting for our out. Here's our out, right? Let's get out of here. And so the Bible says in John 6, 63, that so many people left, the dust settled, and he looked at the disciples and said, hey, you guys leaving too? You know what Peter said? Peter looked at him and said, Lord, where are we gonna go? You promise eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Listen to me, listen to me. Peter did not claim that the teachings of Jesus were so clear and so understandable and so digestible for a Western mind that they were gonna stick around. He did not say that. What he said to Jesus is you promise eternal life. We're sticking with you because we're sticking with your claims. That's what he said. Even though I don't understand all that you say, in fact, we're as lost as everybody else who just left, Jesus. We don't know what in the world you're saying. You're telling us to eat your body. You're telling us to drink your blood. You're telling us to leave, forsake our moms and dads. We don't know what you got in mind. We have no idea what you're teaching. Some of the details, we're just as lost as our brothers and sisters. You got to understand something. Look at me, church. If Jesus stays dead, all is lost. This is so important for the Western church to digest together. We've got to confess that today. We've got to digest that today. In that little room, let me ask a question of John 20, where they are locked. Do the disciples that are in that room, do they still have the teachings of Jesus? Of course, completely. Do those disciples have a good, pragmatic discipleship training plan in the notebook ready to digest? Yes. Do they have all of the doctrines that Jesus taught them? Yes, they will record them a few years later. Matthew, Mark, Peter dictated his account to Mark, Luke, John. They have all of those. They have all of his teachings in that room, yet notice all is lost. This is so important to know, friends. This is important to know. They have all of the teachings, but they don't have the person and everything is lost. And it should be the same way for us in the 21st century. We should never be and allow the teachings and the principles or even the words of Jesus replace the actual person of Jesus. We should never allow it. And some of you are like, whoa, 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 Pastor, I thought they were the same. No, just, just stick with me. They're not the same thing. Stick with me. 
all passion is gone from the Jesus followers until the person arrives. Now, when the person of Jesus enters the room, what happens to their passion? Man, it is back with a vengeance. It comes back with a fiery hot nature. What did the text say? We just read it. And the disciples were glad. It does not mean that Jesus walked through the wall and he stood there with his hands out and he was like, they were like, wow, fascinating. You look good, Jesus. You look good. No. They're like, ah! Ah! Whoa! He's like, peace, peace. Hey, 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 peace. Relax, relax, relax. It's me, relax. Oh, their minds are going, oh, whoa, ah, a mile a minute. They're thinking, oh my gosh, everything he said is true. There's nothing he did not say that's not true, because why? He came back from the dead. So all of his claims, all of his lifestyle, he says, look, and they're like, we're looking. We're not looking anywhere else. We're looking right at you. All of his claims are true. You need to hear me. This is how Christianity started. It did not start with a transfer of solid teaching. That's not how Christianity started. Hey, guys. Point number four, boys. If you'll get your nice fill-in-the-blank cards. Disciples, come around, come around, come around. Grab your pens, grab your quills. All right, point number four, boys. Ready to write it down? Um, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Would you fill in the blanks? All right, thank you. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, I know it's good. I wrote it. Um, yeah. Um, all right, boys, do you have the seven principles of effective evangelism? Do you have it? You don't have it? It's in Barnes & Nobles already. Why have you not read it? Hey, guys, seven principles of effective evangelism. All right, go ahead and get your pens out. Number one, right? No. What he did is he walked into the room, and they lose their minds. And instead of teaching, he's like, touch my hands. Don't fill your minds. Experience with your hearts. Oh, this is so, so counterculture to Western culture. Don't, don't just learn. Experience. Look at my hands. Well, you want to touch my side? He's like, hey, I'm sending you. They're like, we're going. Where do you want us to go? Where is it? Okay, so, so, so watch this. Let's go over this for a second. So Jesus asked questions. Peter a question. He takes him to Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16. For those who've been through foundation phases, it's called the Rock Revealed. He takes him to the, the opening of Gehenna, what was known in the Greek world as the opening of hell. At the place where they worshipped a god called Pan. They would throw in wa- a, a sacrifice into the water. If the water threw it back, it would be panic. panic. They would have panic because they knew God did not accept their sacrifice. So Jesus stands here with the background of Gehenna, the opening to hell. And Jesus says, hey, hey, hey guys, who do men say that I am? And they go, oh, well, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. And Jesus does what he always does. He turns around and he says, but who do you say that I am? And you know what Peter said? Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And this is the first time, put up that scripture. This is the first time in all of the scripture where the word church is mentioned in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is the first time the church has ever, ever mentioned. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, what's the rock? 
The rock is this, the revelation God has given you. I will build my church. I will build my assembly. Church is ecclesia. It's the called out group of people. He said, I'm going to build my called out group of people, my assembly of people. He said, my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Leave it up there just for a moment. This is what we call the first mention principle in scripture. Anytime you see a word first mentioned in scripture, it's going to tell you at the time it's first mentioned what it's all about. So Jesus in this statement, since he's never said it before and never used the word church, except in this statement. He's now going to tell us what the church is all about. And he will tell us what the church is all about if we'll read the text. And I'm telling you today, hear me, if the church will be all about this, we will not lose our passion. If the church will stay connected, no, 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 back up, to, to this, there is no ability for us to have passion wane. Okay, well, what is that? He said, I will build my church on this. What is this? It's exactly what Peter said. What did Peter say? He said, Jesus, you are everything the prophets promised. You are God in the flesh. You are everything our hearts long for. And Jesus said, it's on that understanding, it's on that confession, it's on that revelation, I'm going to build a group of people in the earth, and they will be connected on that reality, on a person, on a person, on a person, not on a teaching, on a person named Jesus. You hear me this morning, we have not gathered here this morning for principles, we are gathered here for a person. We're not gathered here today for good sermons, we're gathered here to encounter the Son of the living God. We are not gathered here in united here together because we believe the same thing we are gathered here and united together because we believe in the same person if you want principles you can go all kinds of different groups in the western world they can do a whole lot better giving you all kinds of principles and all kinds of fill in the blanks and all kinds of realities and all kinds of gatherings you can be in but what sets us apart as the ecclesia of God is we are a called out group of people and what has brought us together is not mere concepts it's not history it's not fill in the blank teachings it's not doctrines it's a person that we believe is alive and is in the room as we speak that's what unites us it's a person and here's the reality church trends they're like hollow hollow wisp of air to god and so just because we can gather people to some teaching i tell people all the time look Just because something's cool at church doesn't necessarily mean it's consecrated at church. Nor should we, on the opposite end, assume that all our traditions please God as much as they please us. I I put this in your your notes. Trends deceive. Next slide. Tradition enslaves. Trends deceive. Tradition enslaves. We need truth. We need truth. Let me give you the difference between, you know, you've probably heard me say it before, but I'm going to tell it to you again. The difference between tradition and traditionalism. You ready? Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. I'm going to say it again. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living folks. Tradition is living faith of dead folks. So let me say it this way. Traditionalism is when you believe it's important to study the ancient landmarks. Tradition is when you believe it's important to know where the actual ancient landmarks stand. That's a big difference in church life. Those traditions enslave people. What we say we gathered here today for is because we believe that same Jesus that walked through the doors of that little room is the same Jesus walking through the doors and the walls of our heart and he is alive today. 
So listen, listen, listen. We are here today celebrating an event, not success keys. Are you with me? We as believers are not celebrating ways to be successful in the world we live in. We're celebrating an event of which our whole hope is based on. Christianity, I know we don't like it, it's not popular. Christianity existed before the New Testament existed. Christianity was around before the Bible, New Testament was written. This book records an event. This book records an event. We are here because Jesus rose from the dead. Furthermore, and I want you to hear this, we are gathered around his lifestyle and his claims. His lifestyle and his claims. Now watch this. His lifestyle and his claims fall flat unless he predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off. But once he predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, then we go back and say his lifestyle is the best and his claims are true. Are you with me? So now that he's predicted his death, now that he's predicted, predicted his resurrection, he comes back from the dead, I can now go back to his life and say everything he did is the way to live and what he said is truth. And his teachings, ah, uh, they're still very hard to understand. Can we admit that? Can we admit that today, that his teachings are hard to understand? I could bring up any biblical New Testament scholar in this room. I could bring up the five greatest in the nation. We could bring them up here, and they're going to give you five different responses to what one specific text in the parable means. Okay? Why? Why are his teachings so cloaked? Because the whole point of Christianity is not to take his teachings and run. It's to let his teachings lead you to him where he can explain it, reveal it, lead you in the way of truth. That's why his teachings are so cloaked because it's not about the teaching. It's about the person. It's about the words off of his lips. It's about being in the presence of the one who declares what he declares. That's why his teachings are the way they are. And so what do the disciples do? Oh, uh, he gives and structures his teaching in a way that we say, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, what does that mean? And Jesus says, come on, follow me. Come on, come on, come on. I'll show you. Um, time out. Um, would you, you right now just explain to me what that actually means? No, 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 no. Watch me, watch me. I won't explain, I'll demonstrate. And here's what's happened. We have taken an event, his claims, his lifestyle, and we've turned it into teachings, traditions, and principles for good living. And we wonder why our passion ebbs and flows. Your passion will always ebb and flow if you make it about teachings and principles. It's about a person. It's about a person. It's about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because instead of celebrating an eyewitness account of the only man who's ever beat death, hell, in the grave and rose from the dead, we turn it into, okay, boys and girls, get your pens out. Let's write down seven keys to make sure your career is fantastic. Now, listen, listen, I got no problem. If you got seven keys to make my career fantastic, I got no problem. I'll take your seven keys to make my career fantastic. I'm just saying that's not the glue that brought us together. Seven keys for successful living is not what brought us in the same room today. What brought us in the same room today is because there was a man who lived a lifestyle that was holy and upright. There was a man who made claims he was the son of God, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and pulled it off and came back, walked through the locked doors, and stood in front of the disciples and said, Peace! Be still! That's why we have been brought together. That is what is our common unity. Not a, not a Bible, not 66 books, but a Jesus. 
Now, what do we learn about the Jesus in that Bible? Now, 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 I, as a pastor then, am not a motivated speaker. And I'm not a motivational speaker. I am, Pastor Chad, is to come each up, each year, uh, up, up here each and every week and to declare to you about an event and a lifestyle and claims that the man who beat death claims. We are to herald. That's what preachers are. We herald the person of Jesus. So, so he goes on to say, and what did he say? Remember the text? He said, and, and I will build my church on this revelation, what? That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does he say? And the gates will not prevail against the church. Which is to say, what the church is and will be about is a person and the church will be about celebrating that person who has defeated death and the gates of hell will not prevail. Now make no mistake about it. Listen, listen, church, make no mistake about it. We are here celebrating an event. And because of the resurrection, we now go back and look at his lifestyle. We look at his claims and we look at his teachings, which are still hard to decipher. And we understand them and, and to understand. And so that we have to stay close to Jesus to walk this journey out. So what I want to do today is I want to give you a couple of ideas of how you can stay close to the person and stop following the principles. Can I do that? How can you stay close to the person? How can you stay close to the person? How can your passion not wane? How does it get to a place of consistency where it, it grows instead of waning or ebbing and flowing? Now, I know that's not popular. Let me just say this frankly. Hear me, church. You know I love you. One of the reasons your passion keeps going up and down is because you have replaced following Jesus with following principles. You have replaced the person with principles. What's that called? It's called being an American. And I'm proud to be one. In America, hear me, we're not given much to the supernatural. We're not given much to mysticism. We're not given much to the mystery. No, we are given more to the pragmatic. We're given to what works, what will help me tomorrow, what works in my life. Oftentimes, what we do in seminaries and Bible colleges, you know what we do to train preachers? Here's what we tell preachers in the postmodern world. We train up young men and young women to say this, hey man, you gotta tell them the three practical takeaways. You gotta give them the three tools. You gotta give them the three ways to do this. And I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, sometimes this is a person and it's mysterious and it is not practical it is a mystery because sometimes you'll be in the middle of Ingalls and so all of a sudden you'll get a nudge in your heart says get up walk over there talk to that person and it ain't practical and it don't make sense and you have no idea what's about to happen why because it's a person on the inside of you who wants to do something through you it's not a principle you committed to it's not a fill in the blank you filled out on Sunday it's a living person person it's a living person it ain't practical it's a mystery you go through seasons of suffering sometimes it won't ever make sense because it's a person and it's mister mysterious and it's mystical and it ain't pragmatic this thing following jesus is not pragmatic second corinthians chapter three because God wants to lead you. Look what the text says, 2 Corinthians 3 and 5. I want you to hear this. God directs, God leads, God guides. Next slide. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Well, look at that. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I want you to hear that. Directed into the love of God, directed into the steadfastness of Christ by God, we are directed by God. It's a person. And guess what? 
because it's a person, you're going to make some mistakes. And I'm going to make some mistakes, but we commit to following a person who beat death. And then Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, verse 13. He says this to the Pharisees. This is powerful. He says it to people where they've taken God's story and they've replaced it. Look what he said. You've now made the word of God, word of God's Torah. You've now made the word of God void by your tradition. You've made God's word void by your tradition. You've handed down. Watch this. And many such things you do. So what have they done? He says to the Pharisees, you've taken God's story and you've replaced it with traditions. Now, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of the Torah. Instead of obeying it, they have manipulated it to get what they want. And Jesus then goes on in that text and gives examples about about taking care of your mom, taking care of your dad, and, and such things. Now, the same kind of approach happens in the New Testament. We take now with the New Testament. What do you mean, Pastor Craig? We take the story that records the event of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection and then the followers who tell the eyewitness accounts of that through the epistles in the book of Acts. And then what do we do? We take it and we turn it just like the Pharisees did the Torah we do to the New Testament. We take it and we turn it into teachings, traditions, and principles. And being, by doing that, you know what we do? We miss the power. We miss the power. Now here's three signs you know you have replaced the actual person, the resurrection, his lifestyle, and his claims. You've, prode- you've replaced it with traditions, principles, and teachings. I know because I've done this before. Here's number one. Number one, telltale sign you have replaced the person with principles is you get what I call tunnel vision in your spiritual life. Telltale sign number one, you've lost the person and you're committed to the principles. You've, you have develop tunnel vision in your spiritual life. And this is what happened to the Pharisees. This is a dead giveaway. What do I mean? You pick and choose from this book what you want to think is the most important and by necessity dismiss what you think is less important. So, so what you do, that dead, dead giveaway, you've lost the person. You pick and choose throughout this book what you don't think matters and what you think matters. So for instance, you pick an issue from our culture that you think is biblical. And, 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 you, and let's say you stand for that issue, right? You're over here and you stand for that issue. And you say that is the most important issue of our day. But you decide, I'm going to stand for this in American culture, okay? And what becomes increasingly ironic is here you are making a strong stand for something you believe is biblical, and yet the strength in which you stand leads to a loveless lifestyle towards people you believe are not living according to what you are taking a stand for. So, So here's the point. It's called tunnel vision. So what we do is we get a tunnel vision when we've lost the person, and we think every other Christian has to believe exactly what we believe so here's what we're doing throw the picture of Jesus up on the screen we're missing the reality that Jesus is actually the one behind all the teachings and here's what we're doing and by the way I use the Jesus that's more accurate not the Jesus that we paint as Caucasian in the 1980s okay this is much more accurate for what Jesus would be this is pre uh, pre death and resurrection by the way post-resurrection we'd have to read John chapter one he has white hair he's got eyes like fire he's got burnished bronze feet okay seven stars in his hand this is pre pre-resurrection this is Jesus so here is Jesus and what we do as believers is we get tunnel vision and if there's not a church on the planet and, and this is what's funny because when I click on my Facebook feed I see a lot of Christians and this is what I see in my mind's eye Literally, what, when they're typing, this is what I see. And everything's got to be about evangelism. If you're not voting for Trump, who has the better business ethics, do you even know Jesus? 
You get tunnel vision. So, so <clears throat> hyper grace. Now I'm going to read every text in the Bible through the filter called hyper grace. Tunnel vision. Dead giveaway, you've lost the person. You stop looking at the person. You're committed to the principle. And all you can see is this biblical principle, not the person. Listen to me, church, because if you saw the person that you got the principle from, you would also use his tone and approach, but because you don't have the person, but only the principles, you have tunnel vision, and you can't tell that as passionate as you are about that biblical principle, then understandably, by standing so hard and strong over here, you're neglecting every other principle over here. So you've got tunnel vision to not realize that all you see is one part of the pie. For example, particular Christians in this country, now listen, I'm, I'm gonna pick on Christians because I'm one of them, okay? Particularly in, in our country, here's what we do. We are known for what we stand for. Which is interesting, interesting because we should be known for who we love, not what we stand for. Because the number one thing that defines us as scriptural people is that we actually love our neighbors ourselves, not our principle above our neighbor, not our voting precinct above our neighbor, not our desire of the biblical principle to be applied to myself and my neighbor, but my neighbor. To love my neighbor as myself. By the way, the Bible says you don't even know if you love God if you don't love your neighbor. So, to, look, to say you love someone who loves something, but you don't love the something that that person loves, but you claim to love that person, it's like, Meredith, I love you, babe. I just don't love anything you love. She like, it won't go down like that. If you're going to love me, you're going to love what I, I'm like. That's true. That's true. I'm going to love what you love. So what does God love above all things? Principles. No, people. What does God love about all things? Truths for you to stand on? No, people. He died for, for people. He wants to redeem people. He loves people. But when I allow teachings, traditions, and philosophies and principles to replace a person, I get tunnel vision. We pick and choose. Listen, listen, Christian, if there's some picking and choosing in your life right now, that might be one of the signs. You've removed yourself from the event, from the person, from the phenomenon that is Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, next slide, a subtle but very powerful trick of the enemy in today's world is to make Christians more passionate about specific beliefs and causes than they are about Jesus. Probably one of the most damning subtle tricks of the enemy. To get people more passionate about a principle than they are about Jesus to get more passionate about a cause, about a belief, than they are about Jesus. We are a movement, aren't we? They're called the movement of Christianity. We also are a movement within a movement. We're called the Dwelling Place Church Movement. Next slide. You know when a movement starts? When the founder really knows Jesus. You know how a movement dies? When the followers only know the founder. Movements only keep happening when followers also know and love Jesus also continue to love Jesus, passionately pursue Jesus. Here's number two. Another thing is what I call elitism. Telltale sign, you've lost the person, replaced with principles, elitism. You know what elitism is? Spiritual elitism. Jesus talks about this in Luke eleven fifty two. This is what he says. He says, woe to you loggers for you've taken away the key of knowledge. Everybody say the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, Pharisees, 
And you hindered those who were entering. Here's what we do. Leave it up there. When we replace Jesus with traditionals, traditions and principles, what we do is we end up projecting ourselves at a status that is not easy for other people to achieve. And we start to teach people. It's subtle, but we start to teach people this. Hey, if you're going to reach my status, you got some work to do. You're going to reach where I am in the Lord? You better get ready. Okay? You got a lot of work to do. Now, brother, if you're going to pray like me, are you hearing me, brother? Brother. Brother, brother. If you're going to pray like me, I have waken up at 6 a.m. every morning for the last six and a half years to pray for the city of Woodstock. The door that God has opened for me in this city, not the door God's opened for you, but the door that God's opened for me has not come easy. I got the marks on the carpet from my knees. Right? And, and it's very subtle. Last time I checked, how do we receive Jesus? Through merit? No, through grace. See, anytime we lose the sight of Jesus and become about the principle, we've gone into spiritual elitism. So now we make it about a status that hardly anybody else can reach. And we don't mean to, but we start projecting principles as the highway and the on-ramp to all the blessings of God. So we get people coming and say, oh, you want good children? You got to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As if your children turned out well because of your traditions and principles and that someone else's didn't. And it's not by grace. See, this is where spiritual elitism comes in. Now some of that, listen, some of that, people say, you want to be blessed? <laughs> you need to walk in the blessing. Now listen, listen, hear me. Some of that may have credence at some point, but last time I checked, we are welcome into his family by our effort to obtain the blessing, right? No. By Jesus. And the Bible says he gives us richly, he does all things to enjoy. But see, elitism is a classic projection of someone who's replaced a person. See, Jesus was the great leveler. Do you know this? He was the great leveler. Everywhere he went, he robbed the Pharisees and Sadducees of their high perch, and they hated it, and they hated him. Because every time he got around them, they were like, I'm not like you. And he's like, hey, man, guys, you're just like us. No, we're not. We're not like you. You know, he without the first stone, you know, but sin cast the first stone. You know, like the, everywhere Jesus goes, he robs the Pharisees of a high status, and they can't stand it. They hate him. They don't like it. So he, what does he do? He's telling stories on them. He's the great leveler. He's like, they're just, they're just like us disciples. <laughs> he pulled the veil back. Hey, they're not that very impressive. They think they're impressive. That's why they wear those nice little robes because they feel really good about themselves when they get with their robes and you and there's more of them than you and, and they make them feel, feel, makes them feel really good when they're in your presence and Jesus. So what do they do? They plan to kill him because he's taking away their high status in society. He's leveling the playing field. He's leveling the playing field. Jesus is the great leveler. Jesus came to destroy elitism. You know what he said? Come one, come all. He who wants to come, right? Come. Whosoever shall come, come. He wrecked the temple, y'all. He turned over tables because they had turned it into a place that if you didn't have enough money, you couldn't get right with God. If you weren't a Jew, you couldn't have access to the grace. Listen, I know we look at the scripture and think, oh, they did it then. We still do it today. 
See, if you're not close to the person, then elitism gives you an edge. It gives you a sense of identity. When you don't have true intimacy with the Lord internally, then what you do is you got to put on an air of projection that you're elite to the people around you. So our bumper stickers in Woodstock give us away. We stroll through towns, cities, and, and, and villages across this world, and we say, I'm a believer. I live by the word of God. I had a friend tell me this week, he said, you know, Craig, what's the difference between me and a murderer? And I said, no, what? And he said, a murderer killed someone. I thought, wow, I never thought of it like that. That's all the difference is between me and another person. Hear me, hear me. Every one of us have something hidden in our life that if it were displayed this week publicly, it would be disastrous, embarrassing, and even bring suicidal thoughts in some of our minds. We all need grace, and we owe grace to one another. There is no need and no place for elitism. It's none. Now listen, if you don't want to be on the same level playing field as others, don't hang with Jesus, take his teachings, and run for your life and start some other context. Because he'll level you. He'll level you. Third, lastly, a telltale sign that you've replaced the person with principles is knowledge. And this is a supreme trust in knowledge. So when you don't have Jesus, watch this, you ready? You pick and choose what you want to pick and choose, what you want from his ways. You project elitism and people have to do great things to do what you've done because you've done great things. And then what do you do? You project this idea of incredible knowledge. And here's what happens. We turn a storybook into a competition of knowledge. And this very book, you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1? This very book says knowledge puffs up. Translation, knowledge can make you a jerk if you let it. The most jerkish people are high knowledge people. That's what it says. But love builds up. It can make you prideful. So we turn scripture into an end of knowledge. So now instead of knowing and following Jesus, the goal of our faith is to who knows the most. And we do things like this. We look at our friend who's a new believer and we say, hey man, would you turn to the book of Hezekiah? And your friend's like, okay, okay, I'll turn to the book of Hezekiah. And they start flipping. You're like, <laughs> Bro, there's not even a book of Hezekiah. <laughs> this is the faith tradition I grew up in. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Do you know the 66 books in a song? Oh, you don't? You do? Okay, do them for us. Oh, you don't know them? Oh, would you like for me to do them? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can do them for us. Okay, ready? Listen, are you watching me? You want to Instagram me? Okay, cool, ready? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, tell me what could be funner. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and here they come. Suits, had seats of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and Psalm. We're halfway through the books, so don't give up. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I know a lot about the Bible. Now, now sometimes, watch. Sometimes I'm, I'm being in, in my life. Sometimes I've gotten to a place where I just read a verse a day. Like, you can't go around American Christians telling people as a pastor, you only read a verse a day. Are you serious? Oh, my gosh, Pastor Craig, you got to do three in the old, two in the new. 
Do you realize five is the number of grace, right? How about this one? Be honest, sister, be honest. Look at me in the eyes. Don't look off to the left or right. Right here, look, look. Have you read the book cover to cover? How can you claim to know the God man when you haven't even read his book? Right? Like, dear God, people, slow down. This is what Jesus said in John 5, 39. This is what he said. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, you search the Bible, because you think that in the Bible you have eternal life. And it's they, what they is the law and prophets, Moses and the prophets, that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You think you have eternal life because of knowledge? I don't mean this as a slide, y'all. Look at me, church. But there are believers under intense persecution around this globe right now that literally where the Bible's outlawed and the name of Jesus is outlawed, outlawed, and they have one page of the Bible, and that one page of the Bible has led them to live a life you and I as Westerners can only dream of. It has nothing to do with knowledge. It has to do with a person. How have we structured our life around the person of Jesus? Meanwhile, we're back at Bible Trivia Night trying to determine who's best because they know the Bible. And I'm just saying, church, we gotta be over that. I'm over it. One of the beauties about living in Atlanta was that I spent about five years of our life in Cleveland dealing with this every day. This Bible, the Bible in your lap, listen to me, only matters to the degree that it points you to a living person. That's how it matters. Without the person, pride is promised. Come on, team. Pride is promised. Last scripture I'll give to you, Luke eleven fifty two. This is what he said. Jesus said in Luke eleven fifty two, you've taken away the key of knowledge. Everybody say key of knowledge. Say, Craig, how do I stay close to the person? Here's how you do it. Here's one strategy. Every time you read the Bible... The Bible, you need to read the Bible and take with you the key of knowledge. What's the key of knowledge? Jesus. He unlocks the whole book. That's today's message, the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge is Jesus. I'm telling you, when you go to Noah in Genesis 6, don't be looking for Noah, be looking for Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, don't be looking for the Old Testament, be looking for Jesus. When you read the book, the book of Genesis, don't look for the ark, be looking for Jesus. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus is like an ark and everyone who is in Christ will be saved from the flood of sin. When you go to the Old Testament, be looking for Jesus. Maybe, oh, 1 Corinthians 17, maybe Jesus is like David and Goliath is like sin and David reached down and got five stones and five is the number of grace and, and, and grace is what defeats the giant of sin in my life and I'm not David, Jesus is is David. I'm not, I'm not putting myself in the story as David. I'm realizing Jesus is David and, and Jesus reached down and got five, the number of grace, and he defeated the giant in my life. I'm telling you, if you'll go to the Bible and not ask what's in the text, but ask, where is Jesus? Show me you, Jesus. Then all of a sudden, you'll have the key of knowledge. When you get to the Bible, you look for Jesus. You don't look for traditions. You don't look for principles. You don't look for keys to successful living. You look for the only person who beat death, hell, and the grave. Why? Because he's the key of knowledge. He's the key of knowledge. And Jesus said, the spirit of truth will glorify me. Church, the specialty of the spirit of Jesus is to show you Jesus. And he will declare Jesus to you. The specialty of the spirit of Jesus is to make Jesus larger in your mind. 
larger in your heart. He will remind you how righteous you are. If you'll go to the scripture looking for Jesus the key of knowledge, Jesus will declare your mind. You're righteous. He will remind you how forgiven you are. He will remind you how loved you are. This will be a true following. Look at me, church. Dwelling place, church. Hear me. We are following a living Jesus. That Bible, can I break it down for you? It's about Jesus. Notice what the Old Testament, all is it about? Anticipating Jesus. What are the Gospels about? Manifestation of Jesus. What's the book of Acts about? Proclaiming Jesus. What are the epistles about? Explaining Jesus. What's Revelation about? The consummation of Jesus. What's your Bible about? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. The key of knowledge, Jesus. This Bible is about Jesus. And even this week, church, as I studied, I felt my passion begin to grow and my heart surged. And I want to tell you, that's what my 16-year-old self signed up for. That's what it signed up for. I felt Jesus burning on the inside of my soul at 16. And I signed up to say, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm not here in 2020 because of some concepts, because of some ideas of success keys. I'm here because of an event named Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And he lives forevermore. And his lifestyle and his claims are true. And I get to follow him every day of my life. Imagine what Jesus has for you tomorrow, church. It's amazing. You see my, my bracelet? It says, Tetelestai, where Jesus said, it is finished. And it says 33 AD on this side. And I do it because people have been asking me what that word means. And when they ask, I say, oh, it means it is finished. Jesus died on my behalf. And they say, oh, really? When did you get saved? And I said, well, I got saved in 33 AD, but I didn't find out about it until 2002. That's what his resurrection is. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.